Welcome to New Perceptions Podcast, the official podcast of the Journal of Psychedelic Psychiatry. The New Perceptions Podcast is for education, information, and entertainment purposes only. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and do not reflect the official policies of the entity. This podcast of the Journal of Psychedelic Psychiatry does not support or condone the illegal use, distribution, or sale of psychedelic substances. Furthermore, the topics discussed should not be solely used to diagnose, treat, or prevent disease or conditions. And the reading of or listening to this podcast does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. The content discussed does not constitute medical advice, and any specific medical questions should be directed toward or personal health care professionals. If you are listening to us on the Journal of Psychedelic Psychiatry website, it would be easier for you and better for us if you would please consider following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so that you will be notified when the latest episode airs. If you would like to support the journal and New Perceptions podcast, please see the link in the show notes for more details. I am Dr. Tyler Chervested, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal, and it's my privilege to welcome you to this special guest interview. Saj Razvi obtained his master's degree in Eastern Civilization Studies and Counseling Psychology. He currently serves as the Director of Education at the Psychedelic Somatic Institute. His viewpoint article, based on his and Steve Elfrink's white paper, The Psychedelic Somatic Interactional Psychotherapy Model, an introduction to a novel therapy, can be found in the latest issue of the journal, available now online. Saj Razvi, welcome to the New Perceptions Podcast. Hi, thank you. Yeah, could you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and how you got involved in psychedelics? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, I'm Saj Razvi. I'm a psychotherapist. And um, so uh, we had a training organization um, that focused on trauma, PTSD, uh, from a somatic perspective. And what I mean by that is an autonomic nervous system perspective. And the reason why we focused there is because we found that doing talk therapy with something like PTSD, like trauma, like childhood uh, developmental wounding, uh, insight wasn't that helpful. Um, having a more deeper understanding of where your patterns came from, we found didn't necessarily change the reactivity of those patterns. And so we we started with an organization that trained therapists to work um, in a much more direct way with that uh, with that uh, nervous system reactivity that we found with trauma patients. And then in 2014, I became one of the clinical investigators for, for the MAPS MDMA study of treatment-resistant PTSD. It was a phase two trial, and uh, what I saw there just completely outstripped anything that we saw in the standard world of psychotherapy in terms of what we could produce, the, the results that we could produce. So in all good conscience, I felt we could not train students to work with trauma and not discuss psychedelics. It was the elephant in the room. It's going to be <laughs> sort of a big player in the mental health field, uh, sort of in the not so distant future. Um, and so we put our trainings on hold for a while and just said, okay, we, we need more clinical experience with this. We need more data. We need more um, information around how these medicines work in a person's psyche and with trauma. And so we, we held off on that and then, um, and then started getting back into it uh, clinically uh, as we, we, we basically launched a clinic that worked with both uh, cannabis and ketamine in the US and Denver. And then we uh, set up a program in Amsterdam where we got to see the effects of psilocybin uh, in a clinical setting. Yeah, that's, that's really great. And so have you always had an interest in psychedelics or is that something that's evolved over time? Yeah, no, I, I did not have an interest in psychedelics at all. I, I <laughs> um, Altered states of consciousness were not something that uh, I came, I grew up with as a normal part of my, the, the tradition that I came from. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I, I just heard about that there was an opening in the MAPS uh, research uh, uh, team. And because of my background in, in trauma, um, I applied for it and, and I got accepted to it because I, I thought it was going to be interesting at the very least. And so, yeah, I, I had no real expectation of what to, what this was going to be like before going in. And and how did you um, kind of first get involved with um, you know psychedelics? Was that a purely academic exercise? Had you had personal experience or or known people that had done that, or was this um, just kind of a, a unique uh, right place, right time kind of scenario for you? It was a right place, right time. Um, it was just saying like, okay, you know, I I know what how uh, standard treatments look, or even somatic treatments look in the in in uh, working with uh, PTSD uh, and you know, let's see what else is out there kind of thing. Um, I didn't have any experience with MDMA uh, personally. Um, So yeah, it was, it was really kind of an exploration. Interesting. And that's a good kind of segue point there. So could you kind of compare and contrast uh, the model that you've developed, which is outlined um, in your white paper, which has been published in the most recent uh, issue of the journal available online now, um, and kind of talk about how that fits in with what, what we know about human consciousness, how uh, physiologic responses um, to stressors plays into your type of therapy, and just take us on a little bit deeper dive of, of what you're proposing. Yeah, Okay. So um, the the high level overview of what we're proposing is that we know, for example, that um, animals in the wild, uh, especially mammals, have a natural capacity to process um, highly stressful traumatic events in in life. Uh, so if you consider what the state of nature is like, you know, life threatening events are not that uncommon uh, in in the animal world. And our nervous systems evolved in that state, right? So it's only been very recently that we've been uh, off of the food chain, as it were. You know, for the most part, our nervous systems evolved over millions of years. We have the same basic mammalian nervous system that other mammals have. And that evolved in a state of nature, which means it evolved under a state of threat at, at certain times. And so what we know about from observing animals in the wild is that they have sort of these uh, natural, autonomic, involuntary responses to deal with threatening situations in their life. And they and they range from mild stress reactions to high stress reactions to moderate uh, trauma reactions, which I would refer to as uh, more dissociative in nature, to high uh, um, severe trauma reactions, which are severely dissociative in nature. And so animals, uh, an animal's nervous system can aut- autonomically generate these responses in response to their environment, as do our nervous systems generate a similar response. But what we see in nature is that and uh, mammals have the capacity to involuntarily move back to, if they survive these life-threatening conditions, they can move back to a state of uh, neutrality. They can move back to a non-reactive, calm and relaxed position because it's it's biologically very expensive to maintain a nervous system in, in stress states or trauma states. And so basically, the supposition here, the what what we see clinically is that well, humans don't do that very well. <laughs> you know, we we have a lot of interruptive mechanisms that that prevent us from from moving back to those organic uh, homeostatic mechanisms. And I, I would say that the two main interruptions that that we have are a um, we're not used to it, right? So we are 
uh, creatures of rationality. We are, um, you know, we're thought-based, we're in control of our experience to a, a large degree. And so, you know, when we have anxiety responses or uh, other, other types of sort of nervous system responses that we don't like, we have ways of interrupting that process. So that, that's one interrupter. I think the other very big interrupter that we found in the course of writing this white paper is some research that's been conducted by Robin Carhart Harris, who's out of um, Imperial College in London. He's a, he's a neuroscientist and a psychedelic researcher. And he basically looks at brains uh, during a psychedelic state. And so his, his entropic brain model of how this works is basically suggesting that there are two modes of human consciousness that, um, that we're capable of operating inside of. Um, one is um, sort of that more uh, animalistic consciousness that I was just describing. Um, you know, it's, it's a type of consciousness we share with other animals. It's, uh, it's not rational. It's not cognitive. It's not uh, uh, abstract. It's not capable of abstract symbolism. So it's, uh, it's not verbal typically. Uh, it doesn't conceive of time, right? So this is a type of consciousness that's very in, in the present moment based on sensation, based on emotion, based on imagery. Um, based on your environment, right? And and it's a more, Carter uh, uh, Harris calls it a more um, entropic or a, uh, it has higher levels of chaos uh, to it. And then the secondary, second form of um, uh, cognition that we're capable of is what's known as secondary consciousness. And this is this would be the way that your mind normally operates. You, the, you know, you're listening to this podcast, um, your mind is operating in secondary consciousness right now. Uh, it's capable of abstract thinking, meaning making. Um, you're conceiving of time. Uh, you know, the, there's and and there's a also a self that goes along with that, right? So, so these are these are all secondary consciousness processes. They're it's it's rational, it's linear, it's um, uh, you know, it's it's how we operate. And the idea here is that. The, the relationship between these two modes of consciousness is that secondary consciousness arises from the action of the default mode network. Um, and if you're not familiar with the default mode network, basically it's the highest order network that we have in the brain. And it's an organizer of our experience. It's, a, um, it's an organizer of the orchestra that is your brain. It's say, think of it as the conductor. And the music that comes out of this orchestra is your secondary consciousness. And the really interesting part here is, and this leads to the initial question that you had, Tyler, which is, what is the, um, you know, the, the, we're talking about the interruptive mechanisms that we have that prevent us from working with naturally with uh, stress and trauma responses. And so the default mode network basically shuts down primary consciousness. It, it, it dampens or suppresses the activity of primary consciousness. And part of that is what, what I just described there, um, these mammalian responses that we have to stress and trauma and the homeostatic capacity to move back to states of calm are part of primary consciousness that gets shut down by the default mode network and secondary consciousness. This use of the, the psychedelic somatic um, 
psychotherapy that you're you're incorporating. Uh, you mentioned this earlier that you don't think that the standard models of you know CBT or narrative based psychotherapy are exceptionally effective. And so um, I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on those generally outside of the psychedelic state, and then why you think um, somatic therapies are so much more um, effective? And I think that probably ties into what you were talking about there with our stress related responses um, from a physical standpoint. Yeah, great question. Um, so again, you know, we have two different directions that the human mind can operate inside of, right? Two different modes of consciousness. Um, default mode network takes us towards secondary consciousness. Psychedelics disrupt the default mode network and take us in the direction of primary consciousness. Most of modern uh, Western psychotherapy uh, most of psychology is geared towards finding stability by moving people towards secondary consciousness. So basically, if you think of all the interventions of cognitive behavioral therapy, like um, cognitive restructuring, re reality testing, uh, insight, um, uh, you know, uh, developing new meaning structures, things like this, those are all functions of secondary consciousness. And they work to some degree, right? In this, in the standard... Uh, treatment model. We have a lot of data on these, and you know, so cognitive behavioral therapy at the uh, you know is effective for anywhere from 22 to 25, 24 percent of the population under ideal lab laboratory conditions. I think if you're considering comorbidity and things like that, that number decreases. But you know, we we know the data on this, right? It's effective to some degree. Um, however, when people take a psychedelic, their brain is going in the complete opposite direction to secondary consciousness, um, which means that, you know, if you try to apply the same interventions that you would apply to secondary consciousness, meaning if you're trying to do insight work or you're trying to do, um, you know, narrative therapies or something like that in a psychedelic state, I think you can do them. I think, you know, I think psychedelics are catalysts and they they amplify any human healing process, but you know, again, the the physiology is clear, right? Psychedelics are are moving towards primary consciousness, and the processes of primary consciousness, which are em embodied processes, they're visceral, uh, experiential processes, versus cognitive processes. Um, so I think the supposition here is that we need a very different form of psychotherapy to deal with the non-ordinary state of consciousness that is the psychedelic state of mind. Let's kind of take a deeper dive into that primary consciousness. You talk about in the paper um, this term you use called defense cascades. Can you kind of talk about what those are, um, walk us through how, how they function and the physiology and stages that you've kind of identified? Yeah, great. Okay. So there is something that is known as the defense cascade in the world of um, uh, animal observation, right? So scientists all the way back to Darwin, when observing animals have observed sort of these defensive or uh, threat responses that animals have to, to threat. Um, and, and so there's sort of what's known as a classic defense cascade um, that involves different levels of sort of uh, activation, fight or flight responses, uh, immobility, and, you know, that, that kind of thing. And so what I'm about to describe to you is sort of an alteration of that model that that's classically out there with with um, what we've seen from from um, from other research modeling the autonomic nervous system. Okay, so basically, we have state zero, which is defined as relaxed and alert. Um, it's uh, it's a condition that uh, the 
mammalian nervous system is in when it's not under threat at all. And if you want an animal example of this, you know, think about being a zebra and you're with your herd and you're on the African plains and, you know, you're relaxed and alert and just eating grass. And then let's say that there's some rustling in the, in the tall grass. And when you're in a state of nature, rustling in the grass could be, um, you know, it could be the wind or it could be a, a predator, right? So let's say initially, you know, we look over, we have this orienting response, which you and I have every day, you're, you're crossing a busy street or something in a city and you hear a car horn. The first response that you have is to orient towards it, right? You don't even think about it. Your, your, your body just orients towards the whatever's going on. And so let's say as a zebra, we, we look over and it's just the wind moving the grass. And so we have a bump in activation in our nervous systems uh, just as part of that orientation, it's a little bit of a startle response, let's say. And then once we realize that there's no threat, then our nervous systems calm back down to, you know, state zero. But then let's say some time passes and, you know, there's some rustling in the tall grass again, and we look over and this time it's a lion and she's stalking us. And if you've ever seen those National Geographic specials, you know, a wild animal, there's, there's no pure safety. There's no like, oh, well, let me run inside some safe uh, uh, house or courtyard or something where I'm no longer in, under danger from this line, right? So this line is there and she's stalking us and she can stalk us for an hour or longer um, waiting for the perfect zebra in the perfect scenario before she launches. So basically our nervous system moves into what's known as a mild stress response state. And it's, it's considered a stable state in the, in the nervous system, meaning we can live there for very long periods of time. Right. And so uh, if you think, if you want to think about this in the human context, think about state zero as being in Hawaii, right? It's super relaxed. It's, you know, you're there for vacation. Your system's just calming because everything is easy. Uh, you, you're hungry, you reach up and pick a mango, right? It's not that kind of thing. And, but then think about state one is living in Manhattan, right? And so think about the, the subway systems, the crowds, everything you have to do to negotiate the stress of that, of that, of that place. And, you know, and it can be pleasurable. People want to live in Manhattan. They, they pay a lot of money to do that. And, you know, it's a city that never sleeps. So, you know, the symptoms of this mild stress state that, uh, that we have are um, hypervigilance, uh, mild anxiety, fidgetiness, uh, speedy thoughts, um, insomnia, right? So again, consider where this nervous system reaction is coming from, right? So if you are being stalked by a wild animal, or let's say, in, again, in the human context, let's say that you're walking down a dark alley at night, even if there's no threat there, your system is autonomically, automatically going to move to a, a higher state of hypervigilance, right? And, and if it's sort of a, a good adaptive reason why we're there. So, uh, you know, it's, if you're being stalked, it's a good idea to not fall asleep. If you're being stalked, it's a good idea to be hypervigilant on the threat, right? And so, and so we can live an entire lifetime in state one, right? I think most Americans, most of us in modern society live in a state of mild stress for most of our lives, right? And you go away on vacation and you experience state zero for a little bit, maybe. Um, but then let's say some time passes, the, the lion finds her perfect zebra and she launches, right? She just, it's a bullet. And as when she, soon as she launches, we launch, right? So basically everybody in that 
situation, their nervous system just went to the next level of uh, sympathetic nervous system activation, which is considered high stress or, or um, state two, right? So this is a full uh, adrenaline. Um, uh, this is the realm of panic attacks, right? This is the realm where you, as the zebra, we either run or we fight or we die, right? There's no other options here. And so, uh, again, maximum performance, maximum activation, and the, the symptoms of state two are uh, panic. They're, um, it's a high adrenaline state. It's very fast breathing. There's lots of muscle contraction that happens here. Um, it's, again, the maximum that we have when it comes to fight or flight responses. Uh, you'll have very fast thinking here, right? Things like that. You'll have, you know, so think of it as the maximum version of state one. So in state one, you might have some irritation or anger at what's going on. In state two, you'll have rage. In state one, you'll have a fear about what's going on. In state two, you'll have terror, right? So it's the maximum version of state of, of uh, stress. Um and of course, if again, if you're being shot at in a war zone or if you're being assaulted or if there's a rape situation or something like that, you want the explosive adrenaline of a state two response at your back to help you survive, to help you get out of that situation. And, and so, and if you remove that, if you, you know, if you take somebody out of that, th that war zone and then they're in, you know, they're safe suburban home and it's 3 a.m. in the morning and they, their nervous systems blow up into a uh, panic attack, then you say that, oh, okay, well, this needs treatment. But again, if you consider the situation that formed the, the reaction in the first place, it's a very adaptive response, right? These are very intelligent responses that we have to the world. So that that's state two. Now, let's say that you're that zebra that's running from the lion and you're going left, you're going right, you're kicking, you're, you know, you're doing everything you can to get away. And sometimes it doesn't work, right? The lion has to eat too. <laughs> so let's say that lion's gaining on you. And at some point, your nervous system is going to have a realization. And by that, I don't mean some kind of cognitive awareness or cognitive realization that, uh, but, but more, much more of a visceral awareness that what you're doing is not working and you might die, right? And so soon as that, that hits, soon as that awareness hits that your maximum efforts at survival are not working, there is a, um, a massive parasympathetic nervous, nervous system response that turns on in the form of an opioid dump or a, a large opioid release uh, that happens. And I'm talking about endogenous opioids, right? Sort of the, the opioids that are naturally made by the, the uh, pharmaceutical lab that is your brain. Um, and so, so you get this flood of opioids and basically you get a, um, a collapsed response or uh, some kind of a, like a frozen uh, uh, dissociative numbing response. So this zebra that was at full stride just a moment ago, maybe the lion gets her paw on, on the zebra, tackles the zebra or something like that. And when the dust clears, the zebra is not really injured or anything, but the, she, she's sitting there stunned and the lion could be sitting right beside her and they're just you know, there. So basically, the zebra is in state three, or what we would call moderate trauma, and the symptoms of moderate trauma are lethargy, heaviness, um, uh, confused thinking, 
um, you know, versus states one and two have very fast, sharp thinking. State three has very confused thinking. So if you can imagine somebody on on an opioid or, a, or heroin or something like that, uh, if you've ever taken an opioid, you know, you're just not as sharp. It's, it's meant to sort of slow things down. And so that's what's happening in a very big way in state three. Um, people feel have sensations of weight. Um, they'll have sensations of um, the versus states one and two, you have a lot of muscle contraction in state three, there's basically a flopped over flaccid kind of muscle tone. Um, and the emotional conditions that show up in state three are the very, very opposite of the ones that come up in states one and two. So in state three, you have a lot of, uh, hopelessness right? Um, uh, powerlessness, uh, a sense, whenever we have clients that are processing a state three event, for example, and they're sitting on a therapy couch, and they're talking about this event, and their nervous system goes into the react reactions of this event, they'll, they'll get, they'll sit there, and they'll just become sleepy, they'll become heavy, they'll just become disoriented, like, uh, um, kind of fog, you know, they become foggy minded, um, brain fog is a, is a, a symptom of state three. Um, and then the one other big symptom of uh, the, uh, sorry, the two other big symptoms of state three that I have not mentioned, one is suicidality, right? So if you think about it, states one and two, you are fighting for your life. You're willing to punch and kick and run and scream and kill for your life. Uh, so there's a, there's a, you're, you're going for, you're going for active solution and escape in states one and two. And in state three, those active solutions have failed so your body is engaging this passive solution. And, and so, but your system is still looking for a way out. So you feel the awfulness of the situation, but you're still, there's, there's no solution. So this is the first time on this nervous system threat response map that we see suicidality emerge, right? People are looking for a way out. And then the very, uh, the other thing that I would say is absolutely common with people with moderate trauma or state three responses is a sense of hopelessness, right? So if you had hope, you probably, the situation probably would not have been a state three situation. If you had hope of escape, you probably would have been in states one or two, right? So there's never been somebody that I've worked with that have been, has been working with trauma that we did not have to sit there and process a significant degree of hopelessness in their system. It's a, especially if you had childhood trauma and the events that occurred, occurred very early in life. So you have, people will sit there and say that, you know, this has always been here. It always will be here. It never will change. Um, so, right. So, so basically this is a dissociative response that, that shows up once we pass that point of overwhelm for any, any mammal. Uh, the one other notable thing about state three is that it's what we call dual activated, meaning that um, uh, you have state three responses along with the, the you get, sorry, you, you have the hypo uh, reactivity of state three and the hyper reactivity of states uh, one and two combined. So if you, again, this is the adaptive reason why we believe this is the case is that um, let's say, you know, that lion tackles that zebra. So things look bad for the zebra, but then let's say that there's a group of hy hyena or something like that, that are threatening the lion's cubs. Um, you know, or let's say that there's some distraction that shows up that the lion has to attend to. 
And it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't happen that frequently, but if it does happen, then the zebra's nervous system um, basically has access to the, to the active fight or flight responses of state two. So, and we, you can see this on YouTube videos where uh, predator and prey are, have this interaction of state three. And if there's a distraction, basically what, what's happening is that, you know, there's a break in the clouds. There's a lucky break for, the, for that zebra. And as soon as that happens, the zebra's nervous system is back to state two and it's out of there, right? So basically what we're saying is that state three is defined by Situ a situation that's bad, it's dire, but it's not over yet. All right, so there's a possible solution in state three, but one that the animal was not able to enact. So in the human context, it would be equivalent to, let's say a child is being neglected or abused at home, but she has grandma's house that she can get to on the weekends. And grandma's house is a wonderful place and it's a warm place and it's a you know, a place of safety for her. And so basically in the world of this child, in this child's psyche, she has a solution. She has a way out and it's grandma's house. The only problem is she wasn't able to enact that solution frequently enough to avoid the trauma of state three, right? So so state three is, a, is what we see with people is that it's a place of um, potential that didn't get actualized. It's a place of, you know, if only I could have made it to the, to the, to the trees, if only I could have made it to the grandma's house, right? Um, so it it has the symptom set that we just described. And of course, my apologies, Tyler, but the other big symptom that uh, comes with state three is depression, right? So the, and this is, you know, depression can be caused by a lot of different things. Uh, we know that, but this is stress or trauma-based depression, right? This is threat-based depression. Uh, and it's, and again, if you know, you're around somebody who's taking an opioid and they take enough of it, they'll, they'll have depressive symptoms. Um, and then the final stage of the nervous system response map, the defense cascade, as we're talking about it, is when the lion then say, you know, we're moving from state three to state four. Now the lion picks up the zebra and takes her to her den and there's six other lions waiting for her or, or the lion begins to sort of bite into the zebra, either one of those. Right. So at that point, the zebra is not making it out alive at all, right? There's no, there's no way the zebra is coming back from that. So the zebra's nervous system then goes to severe trauma, which is a much more thorough, profound opioid release in the zebra system. In which case, you know, the the zebra is moving from a depressive, heavy, uh, anxiety-filled state three response to a much more numbed out flat affect, no, no response of state four, right? And basically what's happening here is that the, the, the biology of the zebra is saying like, look, you're, you're going to die. <laughs> There's no way out of this. Let's, let's, you don't have to be here for this, right? So it's, it's a little gift of nature that I think we have um, before the end. Um, and, you know, I, I realize that I'm using a bloody animal example here to describe these nervous system states. But I will tell you that if you if I see somebody with some kind of childhood abuse or neglect or they grew up with uh, a parent that had mental illness or addiction, I will almost guarantee you that that person has state four symptoms living inside of them. And, you know, sometimes it could be a relatively small amount of state four, or on the other hand, people can just live in that dissociative numbness 
uh, for an entire life. You know, they could have had an entire childhood in that dissociative numb place. And the, the thing is, they don't know any different. They don't know a world that feels different to them because that's what they've always had. Oh, yeah, I was gonna say, that, I completely agree. I see this in my clinical practice all the time, um, you know, with patients that have just absent um, emotions, that, that overwhelming numbness that basically prevents them from engaging in any part of their life um, with as much enthusiasm or vigor as they would want to. Um, and, you know, that, 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 that context that you paint there, I think, is a really distinct one because I am a firm believer that the, the anhedonia that's brought on by trauma is, is in most cases so much more overwhelming than that that we see in just run-of-the-mill major depression. Um, and so I think there's that overlap because, you know, psychosocial depression um, usually has some component of a traumatic experience, whether that meets the full criteria of a, of a PTSD-related trauma um, is usually different. But if we're talking about strictly biologic depression, that anhedonia um, usually is not nearly as severe or as infringing on the life um, commonly in what I see in practice compared to really um, severe traumas and that anhedonia that comes along with it. Um, but I, that, that state framework that you have there with the four stages, it, it really does, I mean, paint that picture in the clinical realm of, you know, you've got your, 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 some veteran patients that are still in that irritability stage two phase where they're, they're fighting everybody even once they get back from war and they're, they're, they're night terrors. Um, but then you've got the older vets that, that have been around so long and they've almost burned out to a sense. They, they just can't hold that state very long and they're withdrawn and isolated and they can't be around people because they do get activated but um, they just don't have the fight in them anymore, and then you get the ones that are extremely withdrawn. Um, and so that kind of uh, brings me to my next question, which is what is the normal autonomic or typical resolution of these symptoms, and how, how would it normally happen? And then in human beings, how does that get interrupted, and what are some of the mechanisms by which it does get interrupted? So the thing what we know with animals is that they don't seem to have an ability to not process these events. So if an animal survives a state three or a state four traumatic life-threatening event, uh, and the initial conditions have to be met for, for processing back to neutrality, right? So one initial condition is safety. Right. And so, again, this is an adaptive response. And if that lion is still around, then, you know, having... Uh, these high stress trauma responses is adaptive. So if, for example, if you live in a war zone and there's a lot of dissociation that you have from that being there, then, and you're going to be in that same war zone tomorrow, there's no way that your system is going to then begin to process um, those symptoms, right? They're, these are not random symptoms. These are sensical, they're adaptive responses to threat. So the big first initial condition is that the safety has to be achieved. The, uh, the next one is, you know, some level of, of calm, right? Um, so basically when an, when an animal retires to its den or it's safe, it begins to autonomically move into um, processing the charge of these events. And so basically what we see in the human context, I'll describe this because I can tell you this is what it feels like subjectively, is that you know you're moving from blankness. So state four is blank, right? It's it's the um, it's it's emptiness. Uh, and if we didn't describe, I, I'm sensing I didn't quite describe the symptoms of state four that well. But but there's a lot of like emptiness, blankness, uh, floaty disconnection, uh, not, uh, unreality experiences that people have in state four, floating in the black hole, that kind of thing. So basically, people will float have that floating experience, they'll enjoy it actually, because it feels like a lot of safety. It feels like, you know, whatever happens to this body, you can't touch me in here, 
right? It's it's an ultimate. It's kind of like um, it's a state of uh, um, it's a it's a great solution to threat because I'm just not even here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you cannot reach me in here, and so um, so. Uh, basically, people will experience the numbing of it, will have them become associated to their dissociation. And as that happens, then they begin to process the dissociative response. And eventually, they'll start to have feelings. Eventually, they'll start to notice some downsides of being in state four. So they'll feel the blankness of it. They'll feel the non-relational space that that it is. And then they'll begin, they'll say something like, Oh, but I'm feeling, you know, this is good in here and I'm just kind of floating by myself, but I feel a little sad because I'm alone. And that's fantastic. That's the movement from state four to state three. So, you know, state four is defined as the the lack of feeling. And then state three is is heaviness. It's hopelessness. It's depression, right? So it feels awful to move into state three, but it's an upgrade because you're moving back into the realm of feeling. Yeah, and I think that's a very critical point. We we talk about this with trauma patients all the time, um, clinically. That that in the process of starting medications, going through even the the trauma approved um, psychotherapies without psychedelics, that things are probably going to get somewhat worse before they get better. You're having to process this trauma because you haven't done it before, and so I think that's a really critical thing for people out there with trauma to recognize is that it is an uphill battle to process this trauma before we get you crested over those high points. And so, yeah, I completely agree with that. Absolutely, yeah. We we see that all the time. People are becoming more associated. The, so the further people are moving towards state zero, the further they're moving into association. And as you're becoming more associated to the trauma that happened to you and you begin to process it, it feels bad, right? So yeah, I, I concur. Um, so so from four to three is a movement from blankness into heaviness, into, so, uh, into hopelessness, despair, suicidality, things like that, right? So we have to prepare people's minds that these are what you can begin to expect and we'll, we'll process them. Um, and then remember, state three, we find is a dual activated. So there's a cold, uh, hopeless, collapsed side of state three. And as people begin to become associated to that, then their systems autonomically begin to move into the anxiety-filled side of state three. So they feel more and more anxiety until they hit um, a, the, the, they're, they're getting closer and closer to the peak of that overwhelm point. And then so they're getting more distressed, their chest is getting tight, their muscles are firing, they're breathing heavily, uh, you know, they're heading towards a panic attack. So that's what state two is, right? That's a, it's a panic wave. And so from state three, you hit a high stress panic uh, wave. And the, the, the grace of that situation is that state two is not a stable state, it, meaning we can, we can live a lifetime in state zero, in state one, in state three, and in state four. Those are all very stable states. State two is a, a transitory state. Um, you know, people cannot be in a panic attack for very long, 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes at most. Uh, you can you can spend hours avoiding a panic attack, <laughs> but but you cannot be in a panic attack for for hours, right? So basically, what we see is when people hit state two, they'll um, they'll be in in full fight or flight panic for uh, for thirty seconds a minute, and then the system moves organically moves down to mild stress, and so right now we're going down the hill, and people are going into more calming associated uh, states, right? 
And and Tyler, let me just say, like, uh, you know, I think one of the frequent confusions in mental health, especially in cognitive behavioral therapies and talk-oriented therapies, because we're not tracking nervous system states in those in those modalities, somebody can be talking and doing insight work from state zero, or they can be talking and doing insight work from state four right? And behaviorally, you cannot tell the difference between those two because they both look calm. But the internal experience of being in state zero, no threat, just calm and relax is radically different than being in state four, which is the most dissociated state that you can get to. And if you think about the the SUD scale that something like EMDR uses, for example, right? So uh, if you're not familiar with the SUD scale, it's a scale of uh, one through 10 on, you know, how, how bad do you feel? And then you do an intervention now, now how bad do you feel? So the SUD scale only me- measures distress. It measures basically sympathetic activation. If people have really severe traumas and then you ask them, well, how bad do you feel with this? And they're deeply in dissociation. They'll say, no, this feels like a one or a zero, right? So self-report with dissociation and trauma is, is uh, a minefield. It, it, it does not yield good data. Right. But that's basically it. So moving from four to three to two to one and then zero ultimately. And unfortunately, what we see, even with the use of psychedelics, is that you cannot skip stages with this. Uh, You know, you can do, I think, resourcing exercises where you can be in state three or in, in a stress state and then practice on, you know, calming yourself by distractions and holding an ice cube or you know, pleasant memories or something like that. But basically, I think what's happening in that situation is you're you're picking somebody up and artificially moving them to state zero versus doing processing work, which is, you know, the, the feeling states, the memory states, the imagery, the emotions that come with each of these nervous system uh, stable states. Yeah, and you 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 also talk about interrupted states, so the the non typical response, and and you bring up something called selective inhibition here. Could you kind of talk the, to the listeners out there about what that is and and explain how it works? Yeah, perfect. So the modality that we work in, which is uh, psychedelic somatic interactional psychotherapy, one of the interventions of that modality, again, it's designed for the autonomic, the the somatic, and the psychedelic state, and so. The basic idea here is that while mammals have a homeostatic response to, to, to threat, and once they're out of threat, their bodies want to go back to state zero. Again, it's very expensive to maintain activated states. Um, you know, as human beings and having this uh, secondary consciousness, we can interrupt that process. And we pretty much always do because it's profoundly uncomfortable <laughs> to go through that. Um, that that really is the motivation to it, and where you know doing having a nervous system response like that is being out of control, right? Um, and so, you know, so for example, if you're if you know somebody is telling the story of a car accident, let's use a very single event, simple trauma, a car accident, and in the middle of telling it, they're wiggling and they're taking deep breaths and they're um, you know, gesticulating and doing all sorts of things. Basically, what that person is doing while telling that story is that they are managing their nervous system reactivity in order to tell the story. Right. So, uh, in other words, they're they're the the therapy or that individual may be valuing the telling of the story over the feeling states that are coming up while they're telling the story. So, 
what we essentially do with selective inhibition is that we are inhibiting voluntary coping mechanisms, voluntary distractions, voluntary avoidance mechanisms to allow room for the involuntary reactions to emerge, right? So again, consider that what we're talking about here is an autonomic nervous system response, and your body knows how to do this. Your body knows how to take you from stress and traumatized states to back to neutrality and calm states. Um, and you you don't have to orchestrate this. You don't have to make this happen, right? So, uh, you know, um, when an animal in the wild is processing these trauma states, they're not engaging in talk therapy. They're not engaging in meaning-making activities or anything like that. Their body is just doing the visceral processing that it takes to, to get them there. Um, so, uh, so selective inhibition is basically saying, let's see what your nervous system does if you get out of its own way. All right, let's see what your nervous system does if you stop interrupting it, if you stop managing it. And what we basically see, so basically, you know, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm well aware, Tyler, that this is anathema to most of the therapy community, right? So um, most of mental health, I would say most of psychiatry and certainly most of uh, psychotherapy is about establishing healthy coping mechanisms, right? Um, we're not necessary. it'd be great if we could have symptom resolution, but for the most part, we're going for symptom management and mental health. And uh, so um, a, a great deal of uh, graduate school training for therapy is built around, you know, how to give people better coping strategies for what they're, what they're dealing with. Um, this is the opposite of that. I think psychedelic therapy is fundamentally the opposite of that. It's saying that, you know, we're doing away with all coping mechanisms while you're in your processing mode. And and because we're trusting what your body holds here, we're trusting what this, you know, millions of years of evolution have brought to your autonomic nervous system. And so what we see when people inhibit the, the voluntary calming is that that involuntary nervous system signal becomes much louder. Um, you know, people's muscles will begin to fire in ways that were appropriate to the threat. People will have emotional responses. They'll, they'll have memories that come back to them that were part of that situation. So basically, their, their nervous system is beginning to process what, what has not been processed before. Absolutely. And, and what is the role of, of the psychedelic substance here? So you, you talk about using cannabis for some or, you know, psilocybin for others or MDMA, I'm sure also gets thrown in there. And could you just kind of speak to what the specific role of these substances are and how you utilize them for different um, interruptions? Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say the big picture role of psychedelics is that they interrupt one of the our primary interrupters, <laughs> if, that, if that makes sense, right? So psychedelics disrupt the default mode network, right? And, and from what we were just chatting about, the default mode network is that part of our, our system that suppresses primary consciousness and it suppresses all the homeostatic self-correction mechanisms that are part of primary consciousness, which this autonomic response is part of that. And so I don't have um, specific... Uh, research data that points to this. We don't have that just yet, but what, what I'm speaking from is uh, a lot of clinical experience, a lot of anecdotal experience that tells us that when, when clients enter psychedelic states, their nervous system responses become much more available to them, much more fluid, much more active. Um, so 
the processing that we see that can take place in psychedelic states is much more significant. The, the somatic nervous system processing is much more significant in psychedelic states than it is in non-psychedelic states. So what we're, the conclusion that we're jumping to with that and as is that as the default mode network is destabilized and primary consciousness becomes dominant, so does this autonomic nervous system response. So, so that's one, that's I think a big part of it. Um, and then we use the therapy that targets specifically the autonomic nervous system response and other elements like attachment, for example, is a, is a big part of, is a big player here that we haven't talked about. But we target these features of primary consciousness along with the psychedelic boosting primary consciousness. And then we see people move through this much more rapidly, much more effectively, much, much more quickly. Um, and then in terms of the role of different medicines, right? So I think the generic role of all these medicines is that they all affect the default mode network in some ways. I know that's, that cannabis and MDMA have different modes of, of action than do the classic tryptamines that operate on the serotonin 2A receptor. But from what we've, our research has shown that we're, we're still, the MDMA and cannabis still affect the default mode network, still affect serotonin 2A. They just don't have the same affinity for it that, that uh, classic tryptamines do. Um, so, but he, having said that, there are specific, uh, flavors, there are specific gifts that these psychedelics do impart that allow us to have a more strategic approach to how we can use them for mental health. So with the understanding that uh, trauma and uh, dissociation in particular, that opioid release that happens for people, with the understanding that that is, I think, a primary element in treatment resistance, you know, and modalities that target um, uh, dissociation or substances that seem to target dissociation, I think are called for at the beginning of treatment versus, you know, further on. So um, we found, for example, in our clinic in Amsterdam, that we had a fairly significant amount of non-responders to psilocybin, right? And I interviewed a number of clinicians there that worked with uh, psilocybin on a regular basis, uh, and they had, you know, a much more experience and time working with it than we did. Uh, I've talked to people in clinical research studies, and what seems to be emerging here is a picture, and the best theory that we have for it is that when somebody's nervous system is locked in a dissociative state, meaning, again, they're their, their system is releasing opioids, endogenous opioids, to deal with the traumatic memory that they have. Psilocybin does not seem to be an ideal medicine for cracking dissociation, right? It seems to me to be a more advanced psychedelic. Um, and it's incredible what, if somebody's ready for it, if they're, you know, if they're, if they have a basic level of ego integrity, of, of uh, identity integrity, if they have a basic level of biological stability, meaning, again, their, their system is not releasing opioids to deal with the traumatic events in their life, I think psilocybin is an incredible medicine for that. Um, but, I, but otherwise, I think it asks too much of the user if they're, if they're coming to the table with a, a much more basic biological level of compromise, right? So in that case, and I'll, I'll remind me, I'll get back to psilocybin, what I think it can, what it's really great for in, in just a second. But for, I would say most people, of, most people of the mental health population, uh, most people that we see in our clinics 
they're coming to the table with a core level of dissociation that has not been touched by talk therapy at all, right? Talk, talking will not shift a nervous system state. <laughs> you have to go through the the the, the visceral waves of it. Um, so for that, I, I, we find that I think MDMA and cannabis are both effective for, for processing dissociation. Um, and I would say cannabis even more so than MDMA. What we what I saw in the clinical study is that, you know, people can maintain that dissociative numbed response with MDMA. So what what that looks like, Tyler, in a in a session is that, you know, you could be an hour and a half, two hours into an MDMA session, have the booster dose, and people will feel flat out sober. Like they got a, a placebo. But what we find is that if people can stay with the the nothingness, the boredom, the the lack of uh, action that's taking place here, uh, then that is dissociation expressing itself through MDMA, right? And typically, I think clinicians will not stay with that. Clinicians are have a, gr- a lot of expectations around what MDMA looks like, and so so does the participant, and a clinician will work to give something else to the client's mind to engage the session. Right. But the suggestion here is that there is gold underneath the boredom (laughs) and there's an entire universe that's being hidden and protected by dissociation that if you just stay with the numbing nothingness will eventually crack. And it may take an hour. It may take, you know, an entire eight hour MDMA session, but it will eventually crack. And in comparison, if you had that same person and they were doing, I think, let's say a somatic therapy, uh, so let's say they were doing what we do without medicine, it could still take months to a year for you know a dissociative level to crack because it might require so much focus and safety and initial supportive and initial conditions for for that for their system to let go. Um, the fact that it can happen in eight hours with MDMA is incredible. Right. It's 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 a gift. What we found to be even that much more incredible is for some reason, and I do not know the biology or the, the, the chemi- neurochemistry behind this, but uh, cannabis seems to be even more effective at, at cracking dissociation. Now, and uh, let me be clear, they're, they're very, cannabis uh, as a psychedelic is very different than something like MDMA as a psychedelic. I think MDMA brings a lot of warmth to it. It brings a lot of attachment. It, it's a much more wider spectrum experience. But having said that, cannabis is incredibly powerful at interrupting dissociative responses. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you're processing an event that might nor- normally land somebody in a state for a reaction and they're using cannabis to process it, it's, it can take anywhere from some like an immediate response to maybe 30 minutes uh, for, for people to break, break through dissociation and start having that high and uh, high stress state two response. So again, my, my best guess at this is because I think uh Cannabis seems to be an incredible interrupter of any kind of executive functioning, you know, and, you know, we tend to hate it in, or, you know, we're very skeptical of it in mental health because it disrupts all the processes of secondary consciousness. It disrupts the narrative storytelling. It disrupts meaning making. It disrupts, you know, anything that your, your conscious, rational, cognitive mind can do. But if you are focused on, amplifying that sig- that visceral signal of what's happening in your body, I think cannabis is pretty incredible for that. 
Um, so basically what we do in our Amsterdam clinic, and, and this is also how, how we work with it in, in our Denver clinic, is that if people are coming to Amsterdam for psilocybin therapy, um, we, you know, we used to start with psilocybin and then some people were non-responders and some people were responded great. But at this point, we're putting everybody through three sessions of cannabis-assisted psychotherapy using the selective inhibition process. And we find that everybody that's coming out of that and that then going into psilocybin seems to be a much more associated responder to psilocybin. Right. So I think our, our recommendation with this is even for people thinking about, you know, once MDMA becomes legal and available, I would say, like, consider, you know, breaking down dissociation with cannabis through just a few sessions and then move it on to whatever other psychedelic that you're planning on using. But I think for many people, they can spend a significant amount of time working with cannabis and then move on to something else. Yeah, that, that's that's very interesting. And, and is that oral cannabis or uh, inhaled cannabis? Um, it can be either. So one, we don't tell people what they have to use or if they if they want have to use cannabis at all. It's it's completely their choice and what they're comfortable with. Um, most people will use uh, vape or they'll smoke smoke it. Um, I think the downside of doing some kind of oral edible is that, A, we don't know how long it'll be before it kicks in in, in any one individual system. And and the even though it is a more psychedelic response because of what's happening in the body, uh, it can last for five hours <laughs> and, uh, versus what we see with uh, vaporized or, uh, or smoked cannabis, which is the onset is almost about five minutes. So it's very immediate. And it can be anywhere as short as, you know, like a 45 minute active uh, altered state of consciousness. Uh, it can be that short for people. And typically we'll do, we'll schedule a two hour session with people. And so uh, if they feel like they're in the middle of a, of a processing piece and the cannabis is growing thin on them, they can just take another hit and, uh, and, and sort of go back in. Because I'll say it's very intuitive. It's a very felt sense thing where people are saying like, okay, this is the level of the medicine that I have, and this is what I'm working with. And this is the level of support that, that it needs. It's, it, it, people become their own experts on this very quickly. Very interesting. Um, could you kind of speak to the attachment aspect of the interactional psychotherapy, as well as um, kind of the psychological transformation that you guys uh, see people go through as they fix these interrupted autonomic states? You were kind of talking about the ego before, and just kind of walk us through the different stages that you see as they they transform throughout the therapies. Yeah, so the attachment aspect is huge here, right? So again, psychedelics are not a um, substitute for human relational processes. They're, they are a catalyst for human relational processes. And for the most part, people coming in to do psychedelic therapy, um, you know, they're, they're coming in because they have relational human wounding. They have childhood wounding. Um, they have a uh, breach and they, they'll, they'll have like uh, a rupture in their attachment cycle typically. Right. Um, and which, this is all to say that most mental health symptoms are coming from uh, human relational wounding, probably in their family of origin. And so the, the standard model of treatment that we've had since the 1950s is what, you know, what I would call the non-interactional, non-directive model, which is that people put on eye shades, they'll put on uh, headphones. And they'll have a sitter with them, and but their sitter is mostly there as just for safety. And if they need help going to the bathroom, really the encounter 
is between the person and the psychedelic and they're in their own very internal space, right? There's no expectation that there's any interaction between the participant and the therapist team. And so the suggestion is that, well, well, hey, well let me just first say that that model works. We know that that model works, the, the data is good on that. Um, but the suggestion that we have is that there's a vast, there's a deep uh, relational therapeutic uh, possibility um, that's being missed here, right? And so our sense is that if you can have the therapist be a player in the psychedelic reality of the participant, then it opens up doors that normally don't wouldn't get opened up, right? So a lot of times when people are doing psychedelic medicine in the non-interactive model, they're having transpersonal experiences. They're having experiences of unity consciousness. They're having maybe some kind of existential reconciliation, you know, and it's profound work. I'm not taking anything away from it. I think what happens to people cosmically and in ceremonial and ceremonies is incredible, but it's not mental health, right? I, I want to separate those two. That, that world is the world of um, seeing the, the glory of the, the universe and knowing your place in it. And it's powerful. Powerful, but that's very different than redoing attachment. That's very different than processing your nervous system states. Uh, it's very different than you know working with the relational wounding that you have in your system. And and so the interactional model that we're suggesting is that you know the therapist plays a role in the psychedelic state, and oftentimes it can be a projective role, right? So you know clients once. A client knows that okay, this per, this human being is in my space while I'm I'm in the psychedelic state. They'll have memories of, you know, um, uh, they'll have uh, positive transference and negative transference that emerges. So for people that don't know what that is, transference very briefly is when you take the memories, the relationship, the feelings, the thoughts uh, that are part of a past relationship, uh, typically one that's uh, uh, not like an unresolved relationship and then project them onto somebody in your present moment life, typically, hopefully your therapist and not your spouse. Right. Um, so basically people with trauma have a ton of negative relational memory from, from their past and that they get to work through that they get to uh, express with their therapist and what this can look like. For example, in the MDMA trial, we've had participants that, would tell their male, uh, uh, the male part of their therapist team to, you know, sit in a corner that's furthest away from them and to never get up and not have any interaction with them during the session, right? And usually that shifts at some point because, you know, but but that is transference expressing itself, right? That poor therapist didn't do anything, but but we're we're entering the reality of of. Uh, the charge transferential reality of the client when we enter primary consciousness with them, right? So our suggestion is to invite that layer. Yeah, that's that, that's absolutely um, what I was hoping for there. And I actually think that segues in. So part of that transference, I'm sure, is part of the, the psychological transformation that you talk about um, in your paper, where they have these tier, these three tiers of transformations. And I was just hoping you could kind of go into a little bit more detail on what those tiers are. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, Basically, again, we suggest people start with their nervous system, right? Because before we're, you know, complex spiritual beings, we are animals, right? Where, and again, if your nervous system 
has, you know, a lot of dissociation in it, then it's going to affect everything down the line, right? It's going to affect your belief systems. It's going to affect your uh, spiritual process. It's going to affect your relational process. So we're, we're saying start with tier one is your basic biological integrity. Um, and so get your nervous system cleared out, get it, get the compromise that the, the charge, like if you have a bunch of events in state three or a bunch of events in state four, you know, process them. So you're not dissociating. Um, and then we can come to, and again, that, that would, I think the medicines at the stage at tier one would be either cannabis or MDMA or ketamine. Right. Um, then I think we come to uh, tier two, which is, uh, I'll define it this way, right? That I'll say tier one deals with the events in a person's life, right? It deals with the traumas. It deals with the car accidents. It deals with the abuse, those kinds of things. Tier two deals with the identity that got created in response to those events. Uh, so tier two is much more of, you know, not, yeah, it's, it's working much more with the fabric of reality that you have that got created that you don't, you don't think that, you think that you're seeing the world as it is. And my suggestion is that you're not, <laughs> right? And you're seeing it through a very uh, conditioned lens of your childhood and the things that have happened to you. And what we find, so tier two is what we do in, in Amsterdam with psilocybin, right? Psilocybin is an excellent medicine at making visible what is completely implicit, what is completely invisible to the normal waking consciousness. And which, and what I mean by that is tier two, or this tier two work is, yeah, making, is, is disruptive to the identity, the you that got created in response to these events. And it's a very, very destabilizing phase, right? Um, there's no way around that. You're, you're sort of breaking down the version of you that got created and in, in its place organically forms another you that is being informed by a therapeutic environment that's being informed by um, a great deal of emotional relational contact right so that's tier two and that's the two that we work with and that's the two that we train clinicians to work with uh you know basic biological health and then sort of identity formation uh world formation that happens in tier two and then tier three we've identified it because it's it's incredible but we don't do any work there because there's enough people uh, out there doing work you know when you're going to peru for an ayahuasca ceremony uh when you're doing ceremonial work i think that's all tier three work that's the the spiritual realm that's when you know like uh when the person in our our hope for this is you know that people that have developed that kind of stability and and, and integrity of um uh, an intact ego structure, then they go on to do the spiritual level of work. And, and typically what happens in tier three is, you know, you realize that you're not such a uh, isolated self. You're not just, um, you know, there's a spiritual awakening that happens in tier three. And I think people that have can integrate spiritual awakening much better. They can navigate that world much better if they have an intact functioning ego structure moving into it so if you have trauma i would not recommend launching into tier three work i would not recommend doing big high dose sessions or going to peru or doing even necessarily doing ceremonial work it's like stay in the psychological contact stay in the psychological context until it's done and then move into that work and i think it'll be far more 
of a beautiful integrated experience for people. Yeah, I would generally agree with that. So I'm um, kind of shifting gears here to our last set of topics. Um, you currently are the director of education at the Psychedelic Somatic Institute in Denver. Um, I'm just curious if you could kind of tell the listeners what services you offer, what conditions you're treating, and what the logistics are kind of of your, your process there. How much um, prep work do you guys do? What are some of the background information on what you people could expect if they were to contact you? Yeah, yeah. So let me clarify here, um, Tyler, that... Um, we have two organizations. One is Innate Path, and it's our clinical site in Denver. That's where we do the work with uh, cannabis and ketamine. Uh, that, you know, it's our sort of test bed. We gather information on every single person that walks through the door. We, you know, we're, we're doing psychometric data, collecting data that way. Um, and then uh, we did a spinoff from Innate Path, uh, which is uh, Psychedelic Somatic Institute, which is completely dedicated to being a training institute. And we do the work in Amsterdam there. Um, so one is geared towards training therapists and we have a grassroots mission goal because we think we can train people to work with legal above ground psychedelic medicines uh, that are not um, in the FDA uh, uh, governance framework. <laughs> and uh, uh, so we, we think we can, uh, through working with cannabis, we can have a much greater wide, widespread availability of psychedelic therapy in the world than I think we can, even when I, something like MDMA comes out, because it will be heavily regulated. It just has to be because of the nature of it. To a large extent, the clinical director at, at Innate Path is Jen Pfizer. And uh, she has dissuaded people from doing long distance work. So basically we mostly work with people that are local in the Denver area because psychedelic therapy is quite destabilizing. Every single version of it, if, if it's being done correctly, it should destabilize you. It's not a, it's not a cakewalk. Uh, and because of that, you know, so for example, what one of the things that we've set up at an APATH is, uh, you know, we have uh, group work, like we have um, uh, restorative yoga groups, we have uh, art therapy integration groups, we have movement groups, we have a, a, a talk therapy discussion group, and the idea, and we don't charge for those, right? Um, the idea is that if people are willing to do the psychedelic work and willing to be destabilized by it, we want uh, all the stabilizing. Uh, factors, uh, all the, we want them to be able to seek resources and stability without any um, hurdles to, to getting there. Right. And so most of the people that we work with at an APATH are local um, because we, you know, people will come in and we do some preliminary uh, prep work with them with the PSIP model. Um, they'll go through uh, you know, because most people are used to regular therapy. They're used to trying to process through their mind. They're used to trying to like have more un understanding and insight to deal with their reactivity. And so we're sort of redirecting them from that to their autonomic nervous system process. And the beautiful part about it is that even if they get that that system working to some degree, let's say 30 or 40 or 50%, um, then when you bring the psychedelic into the picture, it's much more likely that the psychedelic will take that nervous system felt sense pathway than it will take a cognitive insight-based pathway. So that's our protocol there. 
you know, and we can switch it around depending on who's coming to us and that kind of thing. Uh, and then just kind of here, the last one, are there, are there any like specific articles or resources um, that you would kind of refer listeners to if they wanted to learn more? We'll put your link to, to both the Innate Pathway and the uh, Psychedelic Somatic Institute in the show notes. But I was just curious if there was any reading beyond that outside of, of course, the article that's available online now in the, the latest issue of the journal. Yeah, I, I would definitely say take a look at that. But um, I think if we are looking at, we want the Psychedelic Somatic Institute website, which is uh, psychedelicsomatic.org, to be a repository of a lot of information about this. So we're not a general psychedelic uh, web information website, right? We're, we're uh, doing something quite specific, I think, and unique. And so we're just sort of filling that website with different vi session videos uh, that have annota annotation throughout them or, you know, ones that I've narrated over and just saying like, okay, so this is the, the process we're seeing here. Um, and, uh, you know, we have different writings on that site. And so we're, we're just, our, our, our goal here is really one of um, public education. We want people to sort of know about, you know, that, you know, it's, it's that there are uh, um, reproducible, um, predictable things that, that we encounter in the psychedelic space. So for example, again, you know, psychedelics are catalysts. They're not, they're not creating brand new things. They're just amplifying the healing tendencies that we already have. And so we, we want to say that, yeah, there are predictable healing tendencies that we can expect when people go into this. And there are things that, you know, we suggest that you have around the sitter or around the person that you're working with. If you're, if you're coming to the table with, you know, these mental health conditions, we have some recommendations versus, you know, if you, if you're not approaching with a mental health uh, background, I think there's a much more open field in terms of how you can dip your toe into the world of psychedelic work. What are, what are some of the positive aspects or benefits that you're seeing with this uh, type of therapy? Well, um, I think they are, there's a few of them, right? So first of all, I think what happens with this work, uh, what we see is that people regain access to that implicit self that we've been talking about here, um, that that exists in primary consciousness. It's a more uh, access to that more embodied, that emotionally fluid, I would say that more alive self, you know, the self that uh, has wonderment and mystery and, and awe in its experience of the world. Um, I think people, their sense of identity, uh, that question of, you know, who, who am I is drawn from a deeper source, right? So I think that's kind of a more general thing that happens when uh, uh, primary consciousness is more well integrated into our secondary conscious uh, world here. Um, and ultimately, I, I would say, Tyler, that secondary consciousness is a tool right? It's a tool for goal orientation. It's a survival mechanism. It's a survival tool. And, you know, again, if you, do you want your, your surgeon or your airline pilot to be, you know, deeply steeped in secondary consciousness while they're, while they're operating on you, while they're flying the plane? Absolutely, right? We we're, this is not throwing away secondary consciousness. I think that has a, a very big role to play in our lives. But the question is, does, do we have to derive everything from that source? Uh, you know, what we see, for example, is that meaning is something that secondary consciousness processes are not very good at, right? So the, the sort of that existential malaise that, um, that we have in Western society is a function of this. I don't think that primary consciousness 
has problems generating meaning. What we see with clients is that, you know, there, there's an organic sense of um, uh, value and worth and meaning that arises from uh, direct contact with being or direct contact with their own being, I should say, and, and, and with the world. Um, and then the, I, I think yet another uh, benefit is that people can have uh, their own direct experience of the mystical or, or the divine uh, versus secondhand accounts of those uh, of those um, things. I think, you know, there is a organic sense of spirituality that is a part of working with these medicines that tends to arise. And then um, the piece that we've been talking about most of uh, during the session is that uh, we can achieve... Uh, biological or nervous system neutrality and uh, biological nervous system responsiveness, right? So remember, if we're thinking about that defense cascade map that we we talked about, people aren't uh, neutral when they're in states three or four. Um, it may be a stable state, but people aren't in a state of neutrality or uh, they don't have the ability to be responsive. Um, they're just you know, their, their nervous systems are stuck in a traumatic episode and they're not responding to the world that's in front of them currently. Um, you know, unless the traumatic episode was a war zone and they're still in that war zone. But typically for most people, if, you know, childhood events created uh, that reactivity or childhood events created state three, state four, state one, then that's, you know, that's what most people are still responding to. Uh, in their life. So I, th I think being in a neutral, fluid state is a, is a big benefit. And then one other big one, I think, is that we, you know, regain access to that more robust somatic uh, processing pathway um, that many mental health symptoms will take. Uh, so I guess what, what I'm referring to here is future resilience, right? Because just because you clear events and uh, um, conditioning from your past, it doesn't mean that you won't have things happen to you in the future. But I think what, what again, what we see is that people become a whole lot more trusting of their um, autonomic nervous system processes, their body processes. So uh, I, I think what that looks like is when things happen to people, they're able to process it much more in real time than, you know, some, than it is something that they have to hold on to for years and years. And it's degrading their, uh, it's compromising their nervous system as they're doing that, right? Um, and then I think the final two benefits that we typically see with people is that it, this, you know, establishing this basic uh, level of biological integrity, uh, basic ego health level, where your nervous system isn't pumping out um, dissociative uh, opioids to numb you from the traumatic experiences of your life. Once you have that in place, I think it sets you up for, you know, a much um, richer uh, psycho-spiritual development. Um, I think people can then go on to do other layers of uh, psychedelic work if they want to, and they're in a much better position to um, incorporate those, those experiences. And then, and then finally, the very last one I would think is that um, people tend to have a greater empathy. Uh, greater, uh, you know, people tend to become more, more sensitive to life. Uh, we don't see people do this work and then walk away being more shut down, being you know more of a jerk, <laughs> something like that. Uh, you know, it's just I think it's a natural thing when you encounter your own. Um, 
humanity, your own basic aliveness, that it, it engenders that same experience towards other uh, others in the world. Do you do you guys do any post um, session like follow ups with them, like three, six, twelve months out to kind of see how they're doing and if they're kind of maintaining all the success? Yeah, that's a great question. We have been. Um, we have a. Uh, a program evaluation that's been in place that's running at the uh, the clinic in Denver in Eight Path, and they've been gathering data, um, and they're still gathering data on everybody that's coming through the door. So we, it's not been published yet, but um, I don't recall what the uh, the the check in intervals are. But there's a you know there's a session completion check in with uh, with the psychometric testing, and then there's a one year follow up. Awesome. Well, as we kind of wrap up here, uh, could you kind of briefly summarize all the big talking points that we, we've kind of hit today, just for the listeners? Yeah, you know, I, I will say that, um, you know, there's a, I think, from everything we've touched on today, I, I'll say that stress and trauma symptoms, but also many of the mental health symptom, uh, symptoms that cause people to come into therapy, I think what the the supposition that we're what we're proposing is that those are generated by an ancient nonverbal involuntary feature of our mammalian biology, right? So there's that whole defense cascade piece that that you know every mammal is subject to, um, and uh, and we're suggesting that ANS resolution should take the exact same autonomic pathway back to neutrality. Right, so um, the the nervous system generates these states, uh, and it knows how to move back to uh, neutrality. Right, uh, it it creates these places, and it knows how to shift them back. And, and uh, Tyler, let me be clear here. Right, it's not a problem that these nervous system states exist. Right, it's not a problem that we have these defense cascade reactions. Uh, remember, they're adaptive. They make sense. They are, they are sensical responses to our environment. The only, it's only problematic when we cannot return back to neutrality, right? So uh, the idea here that we're suggesting is that there, the idea of homeostatic self-correction applies to these, the defense cascade, the nervous system mechanisms that we're describing here. And the, the thing is, I think most people understand that um, homeostasis applies to the, bo the body, right? There's many, many homeostatic principles that we can point to, like temperature regulation or, you know, um, eating sugar and your body releases insulin to rebalance blood chemistry. There are many examples of, of homeostatic self-regulation that take place in the body. What I think is surprising to most people is that homeostasis also applies to mental health, right? We don't think that you know, depressive symptoms or anxiety symptoms or panic symptoms can re-regulate themselves if given the um, proper uh, conditions, right? So I think what we're suggesting here is that there is a lot to trust here and we can access these features and we can access and, and boost this uh, homeostatic self-correction through uh, this entering primary consciousness states. Um, so... So I think overall, uh, the suggestion is that there is a lot of benefit here to um, integrating, balancing homeostatic 
or I'm sorry, uh, balancing primary consciousness with secondary consciousness states. What we're looking at is, is uh, n- uh, psychedelics not creating anything new, but just boosting uh, what we already have in place, what what uh, nature has already put in place. Um, you know, again, if we, you know, when mammals in the wild get stressed or traumatized and have th- life-threatening experiences, um, they don't engage in secondary consciousness processes to figure that out. They don't engage in insight work to to process what what's happened to them. Um, that processing really is a primary consciousness function. Okay, uh, and then I would just I think add in terms of how we see what what our vision for this is, what what we see where where we see this going. Right. So I'll, I'll just say that. You know, I think most of us get into this field because we really want to help. Um, and we didn't get into this field to put Band-Aids on profound wounds, right? Um, uh, we know how difficult or even impossible healing can be without the support of psychedelic medicine and the primary consciousness state that they induce. Um, you know, and, and so I think what we're looking at is a future in terms of mental health, a future where we're moving from symptom management to symptom resolution right and and don't get me wrong i think if all we can do is symptom management and that that sometimes really is all we can do then great let's let's do that let's engage those though that that kind of support but i think the world of psychedelic therapy really is much more about symptom resolution and 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 sort of ripping off the band-aids and encountering you know what what's actually going on under this deeply under the surface uh, deeply in this in a person's non-declarative memory systems that's generating their symptoms. I think that's the the promise of psychedelic therapy. And then I would I would also add that I think these are our medicines. These are our right to heal. Um, this is more of a, a political stance on my part, but um, but uh, you know I I think that this is part of being on this planet. That these medicines, these plants, have co-evolved with us. And they give us access to um, aspects of ourselves that are very uh, useful, very healing to have contact with. Um, so what we see is the possibility of a real grassroots availability of psychedelic therapy. Um, and, you know, right now, so again, what the modality, the processes that you and I have been discussing on this podcast they are not medicine specific, right? The autonomic nervous system doesn't just work with MDMA or cannabis or psilocybin. I think it, it's useful to have that body process, that pathway on board, regardless of what medicine somebody's working with. So, um, so for us, we're particularly excited because you know you have something like ketamine uh, that's a FDA approved medi- medication. It's very well researched and readily available as long as you have a medical prescriber. Um, and then the the flip side is if uh, you know you have something like cannabis, which uh, has been approved by twenty nine states, I believe at this point, it's growing. And so I, people have access to psychedelic medicines, or I should say med- substances that become psychedelic under certain conditions. And uh, so I think we what we're looking at is a world where people have much more access, much more availability to psychedelic therapy than I think they will when, you know, as, you know, Compass Pathways uh, uh, gets uh, psilocybin approved uh, as a patented uh, drug 
or um, or you know if if a psychedelic becomes approved through an FDA approval framework, which will be something like MDMA, which is is wonderful and I love what Maps is doing with that. And yet, you know, the nature of how the FDA works means that it's going to be heavily regulated. So I think what we're we're seeing with something like cannabis is um, a readily accessible psychedelic. Right. Um, yeah, and then uh, I guess the one <laughs> other piece that we we didn't touch on here is one one of the things that we see is that you know we we've been talking a lot about um, uh, psychotherapeutic support while people are working with these medicines. I think that's true and necessary for people that that do have some significant mental health concerns uh, when as they're moving into. Uh, working with psychedelic therapy, the, that's the population that I wouldn't recommend, uh, you know, go off to Peru or go go do ceremonial work. I'm not saying it wouldn't be useful or beneficial, but it, again, it's very different than, than doing, you know, psychological healing. Um, and so I think one really interesting possibility here is that there's an entire large group of people that what probably would never have entered into therapy uh, but it, you know, but they still, and they don't necessarily have significant trauma, but they may have neurotic tendencies. They may have, you know, significant, some, some events that live inside of them that are creating some symptoms in, in particular situations. But on the whole, these are, you know, the walking well, they're, they're fairly healthy people. And I think there could be protocols put in place to do some self-regulate self-work with, um, with these medicines and, and this processing pathway that we've been talking about. So I think it just makes that therapeutic process um, accessible to many more people. And then, and then finally, I think, you know, again, if, for, if you're a clinician interested in this work, I think that, you know, it, it is possible to provide psychedelic therapy in your private practice. And I'll say if anybody is interested in that, then, you know, just um, the free field feel free to contact us. Uh, if you go to psychedelicsomatic.org, um, you know, we have a lot of information there on what this looks like in a clinical setting and in terms of, you know, how you can implement this in a private practice setting. So there's a lot of training information there. Yeah, I think that is an extremely optimistic note to kind of end things on. So Saj Razvi, thank you for coming on New Perceptions. Thank you, Tyler. Really appreciate being here. I hope you've enjoyed today's interview. If you would like to submit an article for potential publication in the journal or you have further questions, please visit our website, journalofpsychedelicpsychiatry.org, or send us an email at journalofpsychedelicpsychiatry at gmail.com. To stay up to date on all the latest information regarding the journal, please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening to New Perceptions.